I draw your attention back to Genesis 3 this morning. And we'll begin reading in verse 6 of Genesis 3. And we'll read down through verse 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come before you, to worship you, to lift up our voices together in songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we might glorify you, that we might uh, in them draw close one to another, and that our hearts might be united and prepared for worshiping you through the preaching of your word. Lord, we may be small in number here this morning, but Lord, we trust that your spirit is present with us, that he will work through the word. Lord, that he will have a, a word for us this morning that we might be fed. Lord, that we might be strengthened by your word. And Lord, that our eyes might ever be further drawn to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, bless us here this morning. Lord, bless those that aren't here with us for whatever reason. Lord, we ask that your thoughts, that their thoughts might be drawn to you. Lord, that they might worship you where they are, that their thoughts might be uh, drawn to your word. Lord, that they might hear from you this morning. Lord, we do ask once again that your word would be uh, powerful Lord, here this morning, and Lord, that it would uh, pierce through our, our pride, pierce through our vain thoughts and our uh, distractions, Lord, that we have in this world. Lord, we thank you, and Lord, we praise you for the work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's his, in, in his name we pray, amen. Well, do you remember as, <clears throat> well, let me, let me have you, some of us longer than others, have us think back to when we were kids. And I'm going to ask a question, and I hope all of us would readily have the same answer. Did you ever disobey your parents as a kid? Ever do that? Did you ever hide after you disobeyed your parents? <laughs> ever do that? How about ever run from your parents? I did that. I ran out the front door and tried to hide behind a tree. It did not work well for me. I got a uh, number of whoopings that, that day. You ever make excuses for why you did what you did? Pretty natural to us, isn't it? 
Do you ever try and place the blame somewhere else or on someone else? Any of my girls ever blame their sisters for doing something that they shouldn't have done? I blamed my sister all the time, and most of the time I was accurate, but <laughs> do you ever try and conceal your sin or your disobedience from your parents? Whether you know it or not, every time that you have looked at me over the last several years, you have seen the scar of my disobedience towards my parents. I tried to conceal, I tried to run, and I tried to hide it. I had done something I wasn't supposed to do and I heard the footsteps of my mother walking up the stairs from the basement where their bedroom was. And I ran into the kitchen to try and conceal my disobedience. And I tripped and fell. And you all know those big heavy oak chairs around our dining room table. Well, the scar from one of those chairs has been forever planted on my forehead in my attempt to conceal my disobedience. Was there any use in trying to hide to conceal your disobedience? Does it not usually get found out? Sin, our sin, our disobedience toward God, we may have a chance of hiding our disobedience from our parents. We may have a chance of making an excuse to others that we may have sinned against. But with God, these things are out in the open. There's no use trying to hide our sin. We briefly touched two weeks ago now. I wanted to say last week, but I guess it's been two weeks. On verse 8 of chapter 3 here, uh, in conjunction with kind of where we uh, left uh, off at verse 7, we briefly mentioned verse 8. We saw how immediately upon Adam taking and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when he took and ate of that fruit which was offered to him by his wife, that fruit which God had forbidden him to eat, and had made known to him even the penalty of partaking of that fruit, that upon doing that, Adam and Eve died. Uh, a death occurred. They became aware of their nakedness, and they attempted to cover up that nakedness and to hide from God Almighty. Verse 8 told us, and we didn't have much time to go into this, but verse 8 makes known to us that after they recognized their nakedness, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And it's translated that it is, was in the cool of the day. Or the breath or the wind of the day is probably a more accurate translation of that. This is the same word that is used for spirit, breath, and wind here that is translated in most of our translation probably as in the cool of the day. The Lord God was walking. The Lord God was walking. Now think about that in light of what we heard last weekend. And now ask yourself who it is that was most likely walking here in the garden. Would it not be most likely that this is one of those instances where we have a pre-incarnate appearance, a Christophany, as Mark called it last weekend, uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. Well, what is it that the Lord God is coming to do here in the garden but to call out the man and meet with him face to face, to speak with him and to address him? Well, there's something additional now for us to think about in regards to this, to the person and the work of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Um, after hearing what Mark brought last weekend. Well, we don't need to labor this point. Uh, we heard a, a wonderful biblical message on this last weekend. So let's move on and point out that this might be best described here, what this is describing, as Adam and Eve hearing the rustling of the footfalls of the Lord God as he walked through the garden. 
And much like I did as a child when I dishonored my parents through my disobedience, and I heard the footsteps of my mother coming into the area where I had committed this disobedience against her, I heard the sound of her, and I fled to conceal my sin, my disobedience. Well, Adam and Eve fled when they heard the footsteps or heard the the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And they fled and tried to hide themselves in the trees of the garden. It was a vain attempt to prevent a face-to-face meeting with the authority and discipline that was due to them uh, through their disobedience. So Adam and Eve, clothed in their crude, man-made loincloths, Hide from the Lord God. And it's here that we pick up where we will actually begin this morning in verse 9. Where we read, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I asked you two weeks ago toward the end of the message, if you remember, to consider who the seeker is in this sad scene that we have revealed to us in Scripture. Does the man Adam... Overcome with guilt and sorrow over what he has done, come seeking the Lord God. The Lord God who had been his close companion and his friend, his creator and his God, his benefactor and his sovereign. Does he seek out the Lord God for forgiveness? No, he hides from the Lord God. So is, who is it that seeks here? Is it not the Lord God who seeks fallen man, the naked man, the fearful man who is hiding from the Lord God's presence? It's interesting to, to ponder here for a moment that God is altogether unlike us. He is altogether different than we are. I would dare say that if you or I would have been the one who was ruling and the one who was creating here, I dare say that the story would have ended as soon as the rebellion started. That we would have crushed that rebellious man. We would have pounded him to the ground for his treason, his cosmic treason against us for the magnitude of the crime. But God is altogether unlike us. This was a creature. Adam was. He was a creature. Made and and made to honor and glorify the God in whose, whose image he was created. He was given dominion and reign over all of creation. He he was given a kingship, as it were. He was given authority to rule and subdue it all. It had all been granted to him. But to remind him that he was not the sovereign authority. That there was authority over him. That he was not the ultimate sovereignty in the universe He was given a single prohibition, wasn't he, that we looked at several weeks ago. Given a single prohibition that he might know that there was a true sovereign ruler over him. But one prohibition. If we look at it in the vast magnitude of what he was given permission to do, this one prohibition was a very, very small thing. Like I said, if this would have been against us, we probably would have ended Adam right then. Adam rebels against that one thing, that single prohibition, and instead of obliterating Adam and Eve, or even just removing himself from them completely and leaving them to perish, instead of removing his provisioning hand from their lives and leaving them to their own devices, 
and in their state of death, God seeks out Adam. He seeks him. So who is the seeker? Adam? Man? It's God, isn't it? This is so clearly an illustration of what Paul means in Romans 3.11, that no one understands, no one seeks for God. Do you not see that in your own life? Were any of you before God called to you, were any of you seeking God? Were any of you running after God? None of us were until the word of God, the Lord God calls out to us. This is what happened here in the garden, is it not? The Lord God, God calls out to man, where are you? The Lord God speaks out, calls the man forth from his hiding place. He doesn't call all of creation. He doesn't even call Adam and Eve. He calls to the man. He'll speak to both. But scripture tells us that he called to the man. The sovereign of the universe calls to Adam, where are you? Calls to him individually to present himself before his creator God. I think this should be a lesson to us here. Something for us to learn that mankind will not be judged as a whole. It doesn't happen that way. Now nations are judged in one sense. Rulers Groups of people are judged in one sense, but in the sense that we're talking about here this morning that Adam called, excuse me, God called out to Adam and called him to give a reason or give an account of his treachery, that that happens on an individual basis. Every person, each individual will stand before God individually and give account for what they've done. So God calls out to Adam, where are you? This is not God asking where Adam was. This is not the Lord God seeking to find the person, Adam. This is God calling Adam to stand before him. More of a question, not of the where are you, Adam, not in the place where Adam is, but more where are you as in what condition are you, Adam? Why have you hidden yourself or sought to hide yourself from my presence? Adam has no choice when God calls directly to him, but to come and present himself before his creator and his sovereign. This is a call to be judged. This is to present oneself before the bench of a judge in a court of justice. Man has now gone, if you think back to what we've discussed earlier throughout this look at Genesis, man has now gone from questioning God's word and his personal inquiry into whether God's word is true or not, whether God means what he says, and he finds himself being the one who is inquired upon by the word of God. He thought that he was inquiring into what God's word was. And all along we find out that the exact opposite is true. See, this is the case with all of us. We make great claims and we might think grand thoughts of ourselves. We might look into the word of God and have our questions and have our hypothesis regarding this or that doctrine, which we discuss from God's word. But in the end, we find that God's word has been making inquiry into our own souls, peering into the depths of our thoughts and our intentions, asking of us, man, where are you? Where are you? Isn't this the reality? When we thought that we were looking into things, the word of God is looking into us peering into our very hearts and our minds, our thoughts, not just our actions. The Lord has been searching us. Two weeks ago, I believe, we read Psalm 139. Listen to Psalm 139, 1 through 4. O Lord, 
You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How is that possible? We have an all-knowing God. We have a God who sees not just what rolls off of my tongue, but the thoughts that are behind what lead me to speak. The Lord, the Word of God, is searching us out. And here this is the case when the Lord God calls to Adam. He already knows Yet he brings the man Adam to stand before him that he might draw out from Adam that which Adam has done. And when he calls man before him, man cannot hide in anything that the earth has to offer or that man can make. There is no hiding from God. This is God's world, not ours. Man can't go hiding in a bunch of trees like Adam tried to. He can't make for himself a covering of fig leaves to hide his nakedness. This is God's world. It's his. The very trees in which Adam sought to hide are God's trees. The garden in which Adam sought to hide within the trees in the garden. That garden itself belongs to God. The planet on which the garden exists belongs to God. The sun that lights the earth by day where this garden existed and the moon which lights it by night and all the stars of heaven are God's. Where are you going to hide from him? So Adam comes before his maker and he is so far removed from him and separated from him in his state of spiritual death that he is in that he doesn't even understand the depth of the question, where are you? Adam answers in verse 10, Genesis 3, 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam in his fallen state has come to fear the Lord God. He once walked and talked with him with no fear. Because he wasn't corrupted with sin. He was alive to God, in communion with God. Now, as he stands before the Lord God, he is sunken in shame and fear. He is naked and ashamed before his creator God. But you'll notice that he doesn't get to the heart of what has occurred. He has hidden himself from God, and as a result of his sin, now he will diminish his guilt and omit the cause of his shame. He will confess to nothing here except that which is outward and visible but he still attempts to hide the full extent, the full case of his sin. Lord God, I heard you walking in the garden and I began to fear for I can't stand before you naked. I realized I had no covering and shame came upon me. So I hid from you so that you might not see my shame. There's an admission of something there of shame and need, but nothing of the sin and the transgression that Adam committed. It's here then in verse 11 that God replies. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree to which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, who told you you were naked? 
You've always been naked. You've always been naked. I made you that way. And it was no cause for shame. Adam, what has caused this? Why are you in fear? And why have you hidden yourself from my presence? Why are you in, now in a state of shame and death, Adam? Have you done that which I commanded you not to do? Have you transgressed, Adam? Have you dishonored my word and my command, Adam? Have you committed this cosmic treason in doing the one single solitary thing that I commanded you not to do? This is what's implied in this questioning that God is doing with Adam. You see, Adam, in doing what he did, he actually sought to make himself sovereign over God. And that's the same thing we do every time that we sin. When we do something that God has prohibited us from doing, we are saying, I am sovereign over the Creator. What I want is more important than what my Creator wants. To rule through our own judgments and our own inclinations versus what our Creator and our God has given us to do. He's given one command to Adam. One. One single solitary command. There was plenty of food in the garden. Don't eat of this one tree. Adam, have you eaten of this tree? You see, there's no hiding our deeds from God. We've already said this. There's no covering them up. This wasn't so much a question as it was an absolutely accurate accusation. Adam, you've eaten of the tree. This is how God deals with his people when he calls to them. Where are you? Where are you? He already knows where we are. As much as we might attempt to hide and conceal what it is that we have done and all the manner of methods that we might have for concealing and hiding, he calls it out, does he not? I want to look at Two of the many cases in Scripture here this morning where we see this, I believe, occurring. Look, at with, look with me at John 4. Turn to John 4. <clears throat> Consider a couple things here from John 4. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 4. And he, that is Christ had to pass through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to. But it was God's purpose to. And what, what did we learn this last Sunday? That something being ordained does not exclude the necessity of that thing being done. I paraphrase that. Jesus said he had to pass through Samaria. There was something ordained that had to occur here. But it still had to occur. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw, come here to draw water. Do you see here how this woman is able to have this discussion of outward things like water and where the well came from and even some deeper things of nature like this living water? This woman even wants this living water, says to him, to Christ, the word of God, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to bother with thirst. I won't have to bother coming to this well. This woman evidently was so out of the click in town that she had to come to the well at noon. This is not the common practice. They would have gone in the morning when it was cool. She's having to come by herself to this well at noon. But she wants this water. I don't want to have to come here. Give me water where I'll never thirst again. I don't want to have to come every day out and pull water from this well. But this is not what the Word of God, what Christ is concerned with, these outward things so much. The living Word of God, the Lord God, is calling to her and saying to this woman, Woman, where are you? So just like Adam, we see here in Adam from Genesis, Christ is going to draw out the sin. Make known the need. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now we are at the heart of the matter. Where are you? This is the question that, that God is getting at, the Lord God is getting at with Adam. How do we know that this call to this woman showed to the depth of her sin and to her need? How do we know that? Well, look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. She didn't much care about the water now, did she? She left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Now listen, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. You think there was anything hidden from Christ Jesus here? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then we read in John 4.39, later on in that chapter, Many Samaritans 
from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of you, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you see the way the word of God works to draw out the sin and lead us to repentance and faith in him? One more, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here we have the prophet of God, Nathan, bringing the word of the Lord to call out to David, David, where are you? You'll remember, I trust, what has occurred leading up to this. David has fallen into sin, and his sin is compounded. He has neglected his duty. He has lusted. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he has killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now let's look at 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oh, look at the ease at which we talk and discuss the outward things and the physical, yet are blinded to our own sin and the state of our heart, how we have concealed that sometimes even from ourselves. For this reason, God through his prophet called to David's heart, David, where are you? Look at 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 11. Nathan said to David, you are the man. David, that story I just told you, that you said the man deserved death, David, that's you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it discreetly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The Lord will hear the full of it, though he already knows and sees it all. 
He will judge his people according to their sin that he might lead them to repentance and faith. It's after this that David pens one of the most well-known psalms that we read in our congregational reading, Psalm 51, where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil." In your sight. Well, we go on to see Adam's reply back in Genesis 3. In verse 12, the man said, said back to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. What a miserable state has befallen mankind in sin, that he would act so cowardly and unmanly. It is at this point that we find what we'll refer to as this third, uh, third principle regarding sin. We've already mentioned two. Uh, we've not mentioned them by number, but we've mentioned the first two already. The first is hiding, seeking to conceal our sin, or to conceal ourselves in the sin from those that we have wronged. But whatever way you look at it, though others may have been wronged, God is ultimately the wronged party. Isn't that what David said? As he rightly stated against you and you only have I sinned. He wasn't saying that he didn't sin against Uriah or Uriah's family or the whole nation of Israel or Bathsheba. But ultimately, his sin was a sin against God. And second, the second principle was that we diminish our sin or we omit the root cause, as Adam did, of our sin. And now we will see this third principle that we blame others or deny personal responsibility for our sin. Adam here says that the woman... God, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Well, we finally get a half-hearted admission of sin from Adam. I ate. Yet he denies responsibility of it. The woman, Lord, she gave it to me. How sad this is that Adam, who was to be the head, he was to be the leader in this union, the responsibility fell on him. The command was to him not to eat. Eve ate, and mankind was unaltered. Adam ate, and we all fell into sin and condemnation. The command was to Adam. He was our federal head. He was our representative. Here we see what I hinted at two weeks ago, even when we stated that death had occurred. Something even changed between Adam and Eve. It wasn't just that there was a change in the nature of the relationship between man and God. There was also a change in the nature of the relationship in the union between Adam and Eve. Something changed that Adam would even blame Eve for his sin. It was only a short time ago in Genesis 2.23 that Adam was saying of Eve, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now he seeks to cast off guilt by blaming the one that he loved. In his response to the Lord God here, we see even this break in the union between them. He doesn't even call him his call her his wife. He says the woman. 
She gave me the fruit, and I ate. She's to blame. But there's something even worse here. Something even worse in verse 12. Something more sinister and sinful. Adam not only blames the woman, he blames God. Did you catch that? Some say in a lot of the commentaries that this is an insinuation from Adam that God is to blame. I don't think this is a mere insinuation. That God was responsible. I think that here man, Adam, uses God as his main excuse as he stands before his creator to answer for his creaturely rebellion. God, you gave her to me. God, you created her for me. You joined her to me. I was fine when I was by myself. I only sinned once she was on the scene. I would not have done this even if you would not have injected her into my life. Do you hear the depths of the type of excuses that we use? The woman who you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. God, you gave her to me. She's to blame, but God, ultimately you're to blame. You gave her to me. Don't think for a second that we don't do this. We do this all the time. Thinking that I wouldn't have committed this sin if God wouldn't have put me in this place or put me in this position or made us the way that we are. This is what sin has made of our hearts that we would blame our maker for our sinful passions and desires. It's no wonder that James would have to say under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Why did James have to say this? Because we are so prone to blaming even our Creator and our God for the sins that we commit. We see it in Adam, our first, the first man. Well, God then leaves off his direct examination of Adam and turns to his wife Eve in verse 13. Calvin comments about this, that God contends no further with the man, nor was it necessary for all the man does. For he aggravates rather than diminishes the crime. So to paraphrase that, in other words, Calvin is saying God is through with questioning Adam because all Adam is doing is digging a deeper hole. He'll address Eve, and then he'll speak judgment, which we will have to come back to at a later time. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once again, there is, I believe, more meaning behind the words to the question here. I don't believe that God, the Lord God is just asking Eve to give account of the details of what she has done. But he's calling for her to see the depth of what she has done and to what that action has led. How could you, Eve, have done this awful thing and rebelled against me? How have you led your husband astray and away from me by evil counsel? How have you who knew my word we read several weeks ago, she knew what the Lord had said. How have you led, how have you gone from knowing my word to questioning my word, to rejecting my word, and then to disobeying my word? What is this you have done, Eve? What have you done? This, this question that God asks Eve is pregnant with meaning. And Eve takes no responsibility at all in the matter. She does what her husband has done. She somewhat confesses to the sin. She says, I ate. But denies the personal responsibility and blames it on the serpent. And I think it even goes deeper than this. 
that she would even shift blame, I believe, just as Adam did, to God. God, you created this creature. You let him, you let him come into the garden. He deceived me. I can't be held liable for what I did. It was all the devil's fault. We should be mindful, as we will see in the coming weeks from Scripture, by that which we see in every moment of our lives as we behold war and strife and anger and malice and hatred and envy and idolatry and vanity and every other sin and the effects of those sins that we see in our everyday lives. That the deception and the subtlety of our enemy, the devil, is no excuse for sin. And it will not make us blameless when called to the judgment seat of God. We are responsible for every thought and deed before a holy and righteous God who requires perfect obedience. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can plead no ignorance, no blame, no excuse, no blame but our own. The deception and the subtlety of our enemy is no excuse for sin and will not make us blameless before God. Well, we'll leave it here for now. Once again, I don't want to leave without a word of hope to those who may still be in a state of death and of separation from God. There's a lot that we can learn from this, this passage. Let me, through the Word of God, speak directly to each and every one of us here uh, this morning. You know that we can't separate the written Word of God from the person of the Word of God. Can't separate those two things. We call this, the Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God, because God is the author of it. It's the sum and substance of the living God revealed to us, the Son of God, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who came in the garden to Adam. And just like the Lord God called to Adam there in the garden and discerned his thoughts and intents, the written word of God does the same. Ephesians 6 calls the word of God the sword of the Spirit. Paul tells Timothy that this scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for corrections, and for training in righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 makes it even more apparent for us and points us toward the work of the Word of God, the person of God in the Son, uh, the, son the person of God in the garden, in his dealing with Adam, is doing just the same thing that the Word of God, the written Word of God, does to us. When the writer of Hebrews says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow. And what does it do? It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let me apply the word and ask you this morning, man, where are you? Woman, where are you? Are you clothed? Are you naked? Are you trying to find a covering? Hiding from God? Dead to God? Dead to Him? Fearing to come into His presence because of sin? God calls still today through His Word, doesn't He? God isn't speaking with an audible voice to us 
He's given us His Word. And His Word is sharp. It's living. It's piercing. Now, if His Word calls to you, don't hide, as Adam did, or as our nature leads us to do. Come out into the open, confess the state of your heart, repent of your sin, and be washed in the blood of the Savior. It's here and here alone that you find a covering. What did Adam and Eve do? They tried to cover their nakedness. The Son of God is the only, the blood that He shed for us is the only covering that will do. That's it. Here alone that you'll find a covering that can give you peace and safety from God's wrath against sin is to be covered in Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand before Him in His judgment of you as a sinner today. Repent and find salvation is a far better thing than to be called before the judgment seat after this life is done. With no covering. No robe of righteousness. Standing there in nothing but fig leaves. Naked. Before God. With no covering. And hear Him pronounce you guilty. No excuse is going to be sufficient for you. Unable to make excuse to hide or to not to deny responsibility for your sins. You can't say it's natural to sin. You can't say everyone does it. You can't say he created me this way. You can't say it isn't hurting anyone. You can't say no one knows I do this. You can't say I'm just following everyone else. You can't say I was tempted or I was deceived. You can't say other people are doing worse. There will be no excuse that will justify rebellion against God Almighty. There will be those who will be naked before Him in their sin, and there are those who will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Two groups. Two eternal destinies, no other options. There will be no hiding place other than Christ. We sang a hymn last week from Psalms, Psalm 91. What's the name of that? Christ will be my hideaway. Did you pay attention to those words? Christ will be my hideaway. Read them. Read Psalm 91. Read the hymn that we sing from Psalm 91. Mark in the afternoon last Sunday sang for us Hell Sovereign Love. We sang it here this morning. The other name for that is My Hiding Place. Did you hear the words? Did you take in the words to that song? Go read them over and over until you get it. Adam had sinned. I have sinned. And there's only one hiding place. And that hiding place is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Word of God. Flee to Him and cast yourself before Him. Where are you? Let's pray.
Lord, may we be found in Christ. Lord, we seek no other hiding place but that which is revealed in Scripture that will secure us, save us, and hide us from your wrath against sin. Lord, we confess our sins and we plead the blood of Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you for his work, his obedience, his death on the cross, his power over sin and death. And Lord, we long to be sheltered underneath that hiding place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.